0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First Draft is now in its seventh year and recently lost its funding. So I'm turning to you, my listeners, and asking for your support to keep this podcast going. So far, nearly 250 authors have been featured on First Draft talking about their work and their craft. It takes time and money to produce this podcast, to purchase the software, host the audio, and create the show. At patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, you can provide much-needed support for the show that makes a difference in keeping it on the air. I want to tell you I strongly believe that having these conversations is not just an insightful look into our literary landscape, but they are acts of empathy every time we dive into a writer's work, because at the end of the day what we're talking about is what it means to be alive, here and now in the world we all share. I believe dialogue is what we often lack in many realms of our society, and I hope in some way this podcast is contributing to the conversation. So consider that your donation supports over three hours a month of deep conversation about craft and literature and what it means to reflect on our human experience. Please take a stake in these conversations by supporting their creation. There are various levels of support, and each one comes with extras like cuts that didn't make it into the show, writing tips, and even books. The first tier is just $6 a month. So please take a minute to go to patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. That's patreo dot com slash First Draft Writers. And please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also please rate the show on iTunes and tell at least one friend to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest is Rachel Kushner, author of The Flamethrowers and Telex from Cuba. The Flamethrowers was a finalist for the 2013 National Book Award, a New York Times bestseller, and one of the newspaper's top 10 books of 2013. Kushner is the only writer ever to be nominated for a National Book Award in fiction for her first and second novels. Kushner had an unusual upbringing, at times living in buses at ski resorts, holding jobs at young ages, and attending college at the age of 16. We began the interview talking about her childhood.
1: I guess it was sort of... unusual um but not to me you know I mean my parents were beatniks and kind of you know and then sort of merged into the hippie generation in the late 60s early 70s and I lived in a very like free and independent way without much supervision uh and you know started having jobs early you know by third grade I'd already had a paper route and worked in a bookstore and then I worked in a bakery in fourth and fifth grade, and um, I guess that was somewhat unusual, um, but not to me. And just recently I was thinking about that, why why people focus on this kind of thing, like the whole thing with Bodie Miller, you know, great American skier, unusual, um, very innovative, doesn't follow the rules. And they're always sort of trying to tie it to his childhood because he was brought up, you know, in the woods of New Hampshire without running water uh, or electricity. And um, you know, I think people just try to account for what makes someone unique. And I don't know if my childhood, uh, you know, is what prepared me to write fiction or not. But I guess it was a little bit um, not typical.
0: Yes, I was reading about how when you were three, you walked to school by yourself.
1: Yeah, my my mom's very proud of that. Um, Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, I should say, which is uh, you know was a very sweet place to be a child um, and it was a different time I mean I think that there in a way there hasn't really been a recognition in the media uh, that I that I grew up in the 70s when it just wasn't as unusual as it would be now um, to let a child have a little bit of independence and autonomy uh, from its parents I mean given that it's probably was slightly extreme that I was crossing streets at three but that's that's how my mother had things and it turned out okay for me.
0: Well, I know you don't write directly about your life and what you write is fiction. It must be interesting to look sometimes after you've written something because the subconscious is such a large part of what comes out as a writer.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, You know, I mean, I think I, I always point to that. um, And for a reason that, you know, the, the entire enterprise of writing a book um, is really about, in a way, making contact with the unconscious. You know, I mean, in, in kind of like classical terms of psychoanalysis, the only um, <clears throat> address we have from the unconscious is through dreams and through, as like Lacan would have it, language. um and in writing a book, you know, it's it's. I'm sure for many other writers as well. For me, it's not a kind of programmatic um, undertaking, you know, where I know what the book is going to be about and then I just execute it. If I write a more analytical essay, that's what it's like to some degree. Uh, but with fiction, things happen and arise in the work, and it's not so much like you know the mess of the trauma of your childhood or anything like that. It's more a matter of things that really do come as a surprise to me. And I don't see a direct link uh, between those surprises in my own fiction and my own personal experience. But I know that they are coming up from some depth. Uh, And that's the journey of writing fiction.
0: And why did you come to writing? I mean, how did that rise to the surface of all the things that interested you that you wanted to pursue?
1: I don't know. I, I I was always interested in writing. I mean, ever since I was very little, I wrote a lot uh, and, you know, wrote a lot of poetry growing up, starting in elementary school and continued with that all the way through high school. Then in college, I got interested in politics and the world and economics. And um, and then I came back to writing. I mean, it's hard. I, I don't really know quite, what the specific progression is. Like, I can't point to a moment when I said, okay, that's it, giving everything else up and I'm going to be a novelist, but um seemed like a sort of the logical path for me because it incorporates every aspect of a person's experience and intelligence and sensibility, and quite frankly, it's a way of doing things on your own terms. I don't think I was cut out for con- conventional jobs, you know, looking respectable for an interview, showing up on time, um, being a people person. I have a social life but in a certain way I'm really introverted and writing it's just it's a way of being in the world and being separate from it simultaneously and it suits me.
0: How did you begin writing the flamethrowers? What were you thinking about? And did you plan it out plot wise what you wanted to happen before you started writing?
1: I start in a more sort of impressionistic manner, and I can't plan anything until I have a sort of tone or a jag in which I'm writing, Um, and I had an idea of a context and setting, you know, New York City, uh, in the 1970s downtown art world, um, and I was looking at images from that time, because a lot of the work that artists were making was not discrete objects like paintings and sculptures, but, you know, performances and these sort of gestures that are more ephemeral and all there really is is like you know photos and traces of actions that people did and so I was looking at all of that but then as I start to write um, I get a better idea of where things are going and yeah I've only written two novels but in both cases uh, I didn't know how the book was going to end until about two-thirds or three quarters of the way through I mean with the first book I knew because there's a revolution that really actually happened and that was going to be the final moment of the book. In some form. But with this book, you know, it's different. I really had no idea. But then about, uh, yeah, three quarters of the way through, I saw um, the tone or feel of the final moment on which I wanted to close. And it was just a matter of getting there.
0: Your main character, Reno, in The Flamethrowers, crashes her motorcycle out in the desert going 140 miles an hour. And you have gone 140 miles an hour on a motorcycle and crashed as well. And I'm just wondering what it feels like to go that fast.
1: I, you know, it's been a long time, and I rode motorcycles um, all through my 20s. Uh, I'm older than that now. I've given them up are dangerous. Um, But, uh, you know, it's actually, uh, it's hard for me to remember because I'm no longer the person who would have been willing to do that. Um, But I guess it's a kind of breath holding, you know, you just give yourself over to fate and hope nothing bad happens and try to tuck down and stay behind your windscreen, uh, you know, because the resistance is pretty powerful when you're going 130 or 140. But, you know, I mean, it depends on what kind of motorcycle you're riding. Um, I crashed on a uh, <clears throat> on a Kawasaki Ninja, which, you know, those bikes are made to go that fast. And, I mean, there's sort of, um, there's something sterile about the speed of a Ninja. It's really different than riding, like, a Moto Guzzi, which was my first motorcycle. And, you know, it's a twin, and it's... I don't know, there's something very textural about the speed of it. But a Kawasaki Ninja is like, um, you put, just push a button and go, the speed is abstract or something. I mean, that's why, you know, I mean, there, there are a lot of people riding those bikes who really have no business
0: doing so. Well, speaking of speed, there's a lot of references to skiing in this book. I, I, I loved that that was sort of woven into Reno's experience when she thought about things she thought back to skiing. Was that one of those things that just came out of your unconscious or?
1: I like to write about things of which, you know, I have some organic knowledge. It was fun for me to put skiing into the book and to have her um, be a former racer because it's something I know a lot about. And I feel like I don't read that much fiction that has skiing in it. And a lot of times when you read fiction that has skiing in it, it's kind of wrong, you know? Like, when you've spent your life uh, skiing in mountains, there are very particular little codes and details to the experience. Um, So I wanted to use some of those. I grew up skiing. When I was little, we lived in Eugene, Oregon. And so we skied at uh, Bachelor and also a place called Hoodoo, Tiny Little Hill. But, you know, we skied at least 100 days a year. Um, and then, you know, my parents, we lived in a school bus for certain periods of time, so we would go to Wy- Wyoming um, for the winter or Utah. Um, and so it was just all about skiing when I was young. Whistler, too, we would spend winters at. And then we moved to California, and I ski raced. Uh, and then in college, I was on the ski team um, at UC Berkeley. So, and it's still a big part of my life, to tell you the truth.
0: What is your day-to-day writing process? Like when you were saying that, you know, you started with this tone and this these images, do you just sit down and say, I'm going to write for eight hours? How does it go as you move along a book?
1: I just sit down and say, I'm going to write for eight hours. It's exactly that. It's about putting in the hours to some degree. I mean, that's the precondition of writing. Ultimately, it doesn't come to have been about that. But um, that's a necessary precondition, at least for me. Um, I sit down and I'm there, and sometimes nothing happens, and other times something does happen. And it's hard for me to know which day is going to be one way and which day is going to be the other. But I need to be there and be ready for the day when it does, uh, you know, when it does happen for me. So I put, just put in the hours every day, um, except for the weekends because I'm a mom, and so I need to be there for my child. And if I didn't have him, it would probably just be seven days a week of suffering and um, work. But I enjoy that work, so I'm only half-joking when I call it suffering.
0: Yes, and you need to ski as well.
1: Yeah, I I have a really good friend uh, who is one of the people I ski with, and he's always telling me that, because sometimes I forget, you know, and I just want to work all the time. And he says, you need to ski. You need to make skiing a bigger part of your life. My dad always says the same thing to me because he still, he works full-time, but um, he's just constantly looking at the weather patterns and where the good skiing is and planning to just, you know, split out of work uh, and go skiing. And I sometimes forget. And then, you know, it'll be like, uh, you know, we'll have been storming all night long and then we're waiting to try to make first chair. And then I'm on the lift in a blizzard, and I'm going to get first tracks, um, you know, in some backcountry bowl. And then I realize this is just a huge aspect of who I am, and it's okay. It's part of writing.
0: One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book and Reno's character was that in a lot of ways she was in this place of not knowing in that she was she had this sort of innocence about her and I, I think with Sandro and then later with a um, Gianni, a character that she might have aided in some way to do some nefarious actions, she was in this place of not knowing. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about Reno's character and what what was appealing about her to you?
1: A lot of people have pointed out that she seems, Uh, I guess somewhat unknowing um, in regard to the people around her. And uh, that wasn't, it's strange. It wasn't something that I was very aware of as I wrote the book. I mean, I was and I wasn't, you know, because I created all the characters in the book. And certainly some of the other characters have, you know, even a kind of wise-ass quality to them where they are uh, kind of exceedingly knowing, and she isn't. But in writing from her perspective, I think I was just trying to draw from what I think it's like um, to be young and to be surrounded by people who seem as if they're operating on kind of, you know, unspoken codes and subtleties that you're not versed in yet. And um, I think to some degree that's what it's like to be young. And um, people have pointed out that uh, she can kind of, you know, hold back in those situations and I also think that that's how uh, to me, personally, I mean in my opinion, a young person learns the codes of those around them by listening and watching and not by uh, asserting themselves so you know, I I, I tried to build her as I thought a 22 year old around a bunch of 40 year old sophisticates in the art world um, might behave, which is to be quiet and absorb things and try to figure out what's going on.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I chose a a writer named Cristio Malaparte. He was an Italian who wrote his greatest books uh, just during and slightly after, as in right after World War II, Um, and there's a book called The Skin um, that actually just got republished by uh, the wonderful press New York Review Books Classics who kind of, you know, dust off and polish and represent uh, forgotten works of very high-quality literature, of which this, for me, is one. And I originally found the book... um, in the library, because I was interested in Malaparte, he has another book called Kaput, uh, with a K, the German word, you know, for finished, done for, ruined. Um, and I, the style of that book is really enchanting to me, and it's kind of, he's a sort of devilish writer, and you can't tell when he's pulling your leg and when he isn't. And there was another book in the library called The Skin, which is was totally out of print. Um, you could not buy it on Amazon, etc. cetera, and um, I was just so enchanted with it. Um, has a wicked sense of humor. And uh, I was very influenced by it when I was writing flamethrowers in various ways. And then, it, I, then I found out New York Review Books Classics was going to reprint it. So I actually ended up writing the introduction uh, to the new edition, and I'll read a small passage from that. Um, and the, the, all, the only context you need to know is that the narrator, um, Curzio Malaparte, it, you know, was synonymous with the author is at um, a mansion in southern Italy that was the former residence of the Duke of Toledo. And it has been occupied by the Americans who have come to, quote-unquote, liberate the Italians uh, during World War II. But the liberation is also an occupation of court, of sorts. And I think we all know now what an occupation is like since we've seen the Americans be occupiers. Uh, even within the last decade. Um, Now, the narrator is at this dinner that is being given um, by a man named General Cork at the Duke of Toledo's residence. And there's very little food left in Naples at the the time. Um, And so the Americans have been retrieving exotic fish from the aquarium of Naples. But one fine day, the supply of fish in the aquarium ran out. There only remained the famous siren, a very rare example of that species of sirenoids, which, because of their almost human form, gave rise to the ancient legend about the sirens and a few wonderful stems of coral. General Cork, who had the praiseworthy habit of concerning himself personally with the smallest details, had asked the major-domo what kind of fish it would be possible to catch in the aquarium for the dinner he was giving in honor of Mrs. Flat. There's very little left, the major-domo had replied, only a siren and a few stems of coral. Is it a good fish, the siren? Excellent, the major-domo had replied, without batting an eyelid. And coral, General Cork had asked. When he concerned himself with his dinners, he was especially meticulous. Is it good to eat? <clears throat> no, not coral. It's a little indigestible. Very well, then. No coral. We can use it as a border, the major domo had suggested imperturbably. That's fine. And the major domo had written on the menu, Siren mayonnaise with a border of coral. And now, pale-faced with, and with dumb surprise and horror, we were all looking at that poor, dead child as she lay open-eyed in the silver tray on a bed encircled by a wreath of pink coral stems. Walking along the miserable alleys of Naples, one often catches a glimpse, through the open door of some basso, of a dead man lying on a bed encircled by a wreath of flowers. And it is not unusual to see the corpse of a little girl but I had never seen the corpse of a little girl encircled by a wreath of coral. How many poor Neapolitan mothers would have have coveted such a wonderful wreath of coral for their own dead babes? Coral stems are like the branches of a flowering peach tree. They are a joy to behold. They lend a gay, spring-like air to the dead bodies of little children. I looked at that poor, boiled child, and I trembled inwardly with pity and pride. A wonderful country, Italy, I thought. What other people in the world can permit itself the luxury of offering siren mayonnaise with a border of coral to a foreign army that has destroyed and invaded its country? Ah, it was worth losing the war just to see those American officers and that proud American woman sitting pale and horror-stricken around the table of an American general on which, in a silver tray, reposed the body of a siren, a sea goddess.
0: So tell me just a little bit more about why you chose this.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, I should have said. Um, So there uh, is a kind of, um, I don't know if it's a myth or if it's true, uh, but there's a rumor about um, an event that occurred when the Americans occupied Naples, and that was that they ate a manatee from the aquarium. And Malaparte wrote this scene, I'm quite sure, uh, drawing upon that rumor. But instead of a manatee, he has it that they eat a siren fish. And, of course, you know, the siren um, is a classical uh, figure, which is, you know, a person who is part girl, part fish. And so he has them eat a siren fish. And when the majordomo brings the siren fish to the table... It's basically a cooked little girl, and he watches you know, with a certain um, contempt and satisfaction as the Americans freak out because they've fished from the Italian aquarium this little girl. Um, and it's slightly surreal, but it also unearths some very, very material and real contradictions of being both a liberator and an occupier, you know, eating the fish in the aquarium, while the Italians themselves were eating shoe leather. I mean, people were really uh, suffering by that point in the war. I mean, just the level of misery um, and deprivation was, you know, of of a nature that most Americans have no idea. And so I just, yeah, thought it was an interesting passage. It's well written. I mean, he has real style, in my humble opinion.
0: Well, can you share something that you wrote? It could be something that you felt was hard to write, or something that changed from the first draft, or just something that you like.
1: Right. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I selected a passage of my own book. I guess I was uh, I was trying to keep in mind um, this idea of selecting something that was difficult to write, and it wasn't exactly difficult to write, but um, it took a few goes for me to write the passage um, in order to figure out. How to insert the narrator because she's being kind of overridden by other people. It's uh, a scene where she first arrives in New York City and she doesn't know anybody there. And she encounters these two dissolute seeming people in a bar. Um, and they seem slightly important despite being in this dive bar. Um, and she can't really get a word in edgewise with them. They just talk and talk and babble on. And so this is, and she, the chapter is long. I mean, she spends, you know, 50 pages with these people, um, not really understanding what's going on. But in this one small part, she makes an attempt to assert herself. Three or four drinks in, still, they hadn't asked me anything. But what interesting thing did I have to tell? I was content to listen to their stream of half-reports on people I'd never heard of, stories I could not follow, one about a baby named Koch. This lady was nursing him, Nadine said, and then another lady, and you begin to think, wait a minute, whose baby is Koch? I don't know who was his mother and who was a wet nurse. I'll make you a wet nurse, Thurman said as he grabbed Nadine and put his hand between her legs. She twisted away, and then she was prattling about a McDonald's she once went to in Mexico. I had been in a McDonald's commercial when I was in high school, and I thought, as Nadine spoke, that it might be a story I could share with them. McDonald's is supposed to be the same everywhere, right? Well, not in Mexico. They Mexicanize it. Ambergasa con chile, no fries, frijoles. "'I was with my ex. "'We were starving, and I was ready to eat beans. "'We're at the counter and find out we have no money. "'He lost his wallet.' "'She went on about this ex, "'the revolution he had been fomenting that never took place "'and had led to their harsh and vagrant life "'in the mountains of northern Mexico, "'the hole in his pocket that his wallet wiggled through leading to his inability to provide for her the most fundamental thing, a McDonald's hamburger. That was how she put it, that he couldn't provide even a hamburger. After which, she left him and went to Hollywood, where the nightmare really began, a series of episodes and hard luck that involved rape, prostitution, and an addiction to Freon, the gas from the cooling element in refrigerators. What you get. Thurman said when she was finally finished. For marrying that guy, I don't want to talk about him. You brought him up, only to tell her about the Mexican McDonalds. I was in a McDonald's commercial. I said, "Oh, you're an actress." No, I just did the one thing. I I was sixteen, and it was just something—an ad. Our coach answered, and Thurman, she's an actress. Well, I. We did act, I guess, but that's not... They needed a girl who could ski, and so I... You're an actress and a skier? I never meet anyone who skis. Do you ski? I asked, only vaguely hopeful. Do I ski? No, honey.
0: Do you want to talk any more about why you chose this passage?
1: I was trying to think of what was challenging in the book. I mean, you know, after the fact, uh, it all seems logical and like it worked so it's hard to remember what was what the challenges were but um, in that scene I was trying to figure out how she might assert herself and not just be totally overridden like what her interior voice could be that she would share with the reader and then in that scene she attempts to share something with them. It goes on about her having been in this uh, McDonald's commercial um, as a skier and um, it's not something that they can identify with So she remains estranged from them.
0: And I have five final questions. Where do you write?
1: In my writing office.
0: And what do you do to get away from writing?
1: I don't try to get away from writing. I think about writing all the time.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband. And how do you deal with rejection?
1: Well, I've had a lucky run of it. I go where I'm invited in life.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I don't have a favorite word. I love language. Maybe I prefer Anglo-Saxon words to Latinate words. They can be a little punchier. Um, but, yeah, no, no particular favorite word.
0: You've been listening to First Draft. My guest was Rachel Kushner, author of the novels The Flamethrowers and Telex from Cuba. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Radio Show and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com firstdraftwriters. There are plenty of extras for becoming a member, and your donations help to keep the dialogue going. I know you might be listening in your car or when you're on the run, But please consider coming back to your computer at some point and donating to First Draft. That's patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting First Draft. I'm Mitzi Rabkin.